Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the center's director, David Hayes Bautista, otherwise known as the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been a part of for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of gente and health. Our special guest today is Dr. Michael Udell, who currently is Vice Dean and Professor at the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. Dr. Udell is a public health scientist whose work focuses on the history and ethics of public health and medicine. He received his MPH and PhD in Social Medical Sciences from the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. He's authored a number of books, including the one called Race Unmask, Biology and Race in the 20th Century. He also did a, um, an interesting book called Welcome to the Genome, A User's Guide to the Genetic Past, Present, and Future. Dr. Udell also edits the Columbia University Press Series on Race, Inequality, and Health. <clears throat> he also conducts research on autism and ethics including a National Science Foundation project examining the ethics of community-engaged autism research. On a lighter note, Dr. Udell performs at the Crossroads Comedy Theater in Philadelphia, and more recently at the Neighborhood Comedy Theater in Mesa, Arizona. And I love Mesa. My mom was born in Mesa, Arizona. I wish she had gone to comedy. She seemed pretty serious when I was growing up. Anyway, welcome, Dr. Udell. Welcome. Uh, you and I have been collaborating on things since that 20, when was it, 17, 2018 conference on uh, race, ethnicity, and genomics. So uh, I've heard you explain, uh, share your story with me. I'd like you to share with our podcast audience, um, particularly many of them are students, just so you could share your own journey and in getting involved in history, public health, ethics, medicine, genetics, et cetera. Could you just... Sure, a little bit. Sure, sure. Let, let, let me first say it's great to be here talking to you. Um, David, you and I have known each other for five, six years now. And uh, I, I guess we first met in 2016. There was that National Institutes of Health meeting in Bethesda to talk about uh, the issues we're going to spend some time talking about today, I suspect. And uh, it's been wonderful uh, learning from you and your experiences and, and, and watching how you have brought together uh, history and public health and medicine and um, and activism and, and thinking about some of the big issues of our time. So um, I just want to say that I appreciate you and it's great to be here with you today. Um, so in 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 terms of my journey, um, well, I guess going back, I had originally wanted to be a doctor, but I slept through my first chemistry exam and that was pretty much it for me on that front. Um, and in after college, uh, ended up in a PhD in history program with, where I was focused largely on the history of the civil rights movement um, and was interested in the intersection of social movements and culture, um, particularly in the post-war period in the United States, uh, but took a class in the history of public health and really fell in love with the intersections of science and health and medicine and history and also policy and thought that if I really wanted to dig into this, needed to learn more about science. And with my 
um, uh, graduate school advisor, David Rosner, who heads the Center for the Study of History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia, um, started to think about digging in more deeply to the science side of what I was doing, um, would then add a master's in public health um, to what I was working on in graduate school and um, worked at the American Museum of Natural History with a geneticist there named Rob DeSalle, who I wrote one of the books that you'd mentioned earlier with, and just sort of broadened my world to include both the 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 historical topics that I was really interested in, but also the science behind those topics. Um, and the topic that I dug into pretty quickly was uh, the history of eugenics and genomics and how those histories intersected with race and racism um, in American science and public health. Um, and spent my graduate school years and after um, working on that history, uh, which eventually became the book Race Unmasked, um, and have since thought a lot about um, the policy implications of this history, um, which I think we'll dive into a little bit more today. But I guess, you know, sort of the arc of my, that, that first part of my journey, how I became an academic was about thinking how how I would think bigger about the the questions that I was asking and what knowledge I needed to do that, which took me to a couple of different places that I just described. Um, and then pivoting to think about how all of this historical information um, could could help us better understand some of the current um, political and public health quagmires that we find ourselves stuck in, particularly around health disparities and how we measure and describe human populations. We actually assigned your book to our working group before we had our, our 13 conference, so I'll describe it a bit more, uh, back in 2019, I believe it was, um, because I found it a very, very incisive look into how in science we went from eugenics which was often called the uh, scientific racism and trying to prove that the different races exist and they have different capacities, kind of elides into genomics. And right now people then tend to think of genomics, well, genomics, that's subjective, isn't it? And um, so I, I, could you just share uh, with our listeners just the, the, your line of thought in your book, Race Unmasked? Sure. Um... Well, again, I was I remember that conference and I was really flattered that you had thought of of my book in that context and, and had uh, a lot of the participants um, read the book. Uh, it's it's a book that started much more narrowly than I guess it ended up being when when it was all done. Um, and originally I, I was really focused on the eugenic period in the pre-World War II uh, era um and thinking about how eugenics created a foundation for for ideas about race and race difference um and how it provided a modern language a 20th century language for describing human populations and rooting those differences um in biological factors um so we go from a period in the 19th century where of course racism exists um, but what eugenics does is it gives it a modern scientific language um, 
to describe how society and and many people felt about race and race difference. Um, but what happened as I dug deeper into the book is I saw that there were lines from that pre-World War II period into the post-war period and into the genomic revolution in terms of how um, eugenics, again, this idea that you could um, build a better species by breeding like with like, um, and there were two ways to do that. One was to encourage breeding between um, groups within groups and discourage breeding between groups. The other was to literally eliminate um, groups, which the Holocaust is one example of the extremes of eugenic thinking. The Nazis were certainly the 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 the, the worst example of that kind of of an extension of that kind of thinking. Um, but what happens over time as eugenics? Um, sort of gets so deeply rooted in how we think about difference is that sort of the, the most obvious and racist ideas about eugenics um, are, I don't know, they're, I, I don't want to say they're eliminated from, from modern science, but they certainly take a back seat. But what remains is that eugenic idea that race is a biological thing, that there's this entity called race that is associated with different populations and that our genetics underlies those differences. And in modern genomics, while those ideas are generally explicitly rejected, we still use that terminology. Um, and that terminology has such present and historical meaning um, that we end up getting stuck in this place where, you know, on the one hand, we acknowledge in, in modern natural and social science um, practice that race is a social construction, that it's just a, a measure of culture and a variety of determinants of health. But at the same time, it's still that same language um, that's been used to describe human difference. Um, for more than a century and has done a lot of damage by continuing to use that terminology. And that's sort of where my book, my book ends is, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're stuck here. We're stuck in what I describe as, as the paradox of saying on the one hand, race is just a social construction, but on the other hand, it's the best marker we have of human difference. So we're going to keep using it. I remember at that conference, that NIH conference you and I attended, I guess it was a 2016 that long ago. Wow. Time flies. Uh, there were some people from the private sector, uh, I believe 23andMe and some of these other commercial outfits. And I, I remember, and I believe someone, I can't remember if it was you, commented on the fact that um, from about 2010 on, when these commercial companies were just beginning to advertise their wares to the general public, because obviously they needed to have people want to get their genetics testing, they used to say, um, you know, send us your sample, it'll tell you what your racial origins are. And by 2016, they were starting to move away from saying your racial origins to talk more about, well, the geography. Yeah. Uh, could you just elaborate on sort of that transition, particularly in the, with the commercial companies? Um, I, the, the timeline of those changes in the commercial companies, I, I don't know intimately, but certainly there's been a movement away from crash racial, crass racial typologies in those companies, and I think in science more broadly, 
um, since, you know, I guess the last eight to 10 years. Uh, the challenge, of course, is are we substituting, you know, terms like ancestry and population for race, but using the same underlying thought about what difference means? Um, when you go to 23andMe, and I've, I, I intentionally took both the 23andMe and the Ancestry.com testing to look at how they described my results. So um, when I originally tested with Ancestry.com, it showed me, you know, primarily being Ashkenazi Jewish, um, and then a very small fraction being Irish, uh, which, you know, I, I, I was not aware of that ancestry. I have Irish uh, relatives by marriage, but not as far as as recent bloodline as far as I knew. Whereas 23andMe showed me something different. They also identified me as Ashkenazi Jewish, um, but suggested that I was of West Africa, a small percentage of me was from West Africa, um, dating back a few centuries. Um, how do you align those two very different results and results that in the years since I took the test have have changed um the irish result from 23andme has now disappeared and i'm you know almost all ashkenazi jewish according to them in my recent ancestry 23andme i've moved around different parts of africa in my ancestry so again not sure what to make of what of what those claims mean um but what i've i've seen them focus more closely on is ethnic group rather than race as a category. Um, how that plays out in how people think about and identify themselves, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the effect is ultimately any different given how deep-seated, you know, racialized thinking is in our country. Sure, we can call it ethnicity. Sure, we can call it ancestry. But I think we still have a lot of work to do to, to change how those historical typologies influence people's thinking, even if we're using different language. Well, one of the interesting things when uh, both these commercial companies, and by the way, then the official U.S. records, the census records, our death records, our birth records, is that they tend to describe geographies under race. And I'm thinking when I was growing up, the country Vietnam did not exist. But now, Vietnamese is a race. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Vietnam, at best, was a geography. When I was growing up, that region was known as French Indochina, and it had different boundaries, et cetera. Even in the, within the geography of Vietnam, there are about 13, 14 major linguistic ethnic groups. Uh, and then suddenly they're one race. And I say, yeah, but that's a geography. Even within the race, racist thinking, that's not a race, that's a geography. Uh, so it gets rather confusing very quickly once you start to poke a little bit of the notion that as scientists, race is out there in nature. We're just recording it, observing and recording it. Uh, it's not quite as simple. Right. And I think, you know, when you talk about geography, I think that's an idea that aligns more closely with how evolutionary biologists think about difference, right? They're trying to understand, you know, patterns of migration and evolution of different traits across time. And to them, geography makes a lot of sense. What the evolutionary biologists in the mid 20th century were struggling with was how to describe that geography and initially use racial terminology. But by the 1960s, they were really leading changes 
on the scientific on the natural scientific side of things to say you can't use you know social terms like race to to understand you know the 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 human geographic and evolutionary architecture because race is a social idea and that was a challenge that was um put forth to the field um by one of the leading evolutionary thinkers of the 20th century Theodosius Dobzhansky who was a professor at Columbia and later um at Rockefeller and Caltech um but he, he implicitly understood the problems with mapping the, the the ideas of race onto what you're describing which is that people live in places on the planet and they move around and while they're moving around they're mating with each other and sharing genes across and within geographies and you know that those are interesting questions for scientists to ask it's when we start mapping the ideas of race onto those questions that we run into a lot of problems yeah and in addition to sharing genes sharing food music yes. clothing Culture. just all sorts of things yes well and that gets to the uh issue that you brought up about ethnicity ethnic groups and one of the things that we've been doing over at this end at the Seslac end uh is really um problematizing the whole issue of what is latino uh there is the we start with the official census way and in the census everyone is asked two questions the first question has to do with your ethnicity and there are only two ethnic groups in the united states according to the census there is the hispanic slash latino slash chicano slash mexican-american slash cuban slash boricua ethnicity and either you are that or you are not and i think well what happens to you know all my friends who are irish who are italian or sephardim or ashkenazim or whatever they don't exist but i get apparently in the eyes of the census no either you're hispanic or you're not okay and in the 2020 census 62.1 million people raised their hands and said yeah i'm a member of that group i don't like your term i'm not hispanic that uh sort of raises the spanish above the indigenous but i understand what you're trying to yeah i'm a member of that and everybody else says no i'm not but then everyone is asked okay now what's your race are you white are you black are you asian are you indian or are you some other race and in the 2020 census those who didn't raise their hands who are not hispanic pretty much all put themselves into one of those groups basically white folks said they were white black folks said they were black asian folks said they're asian etc and a very small percent i think it was about three tenths of a percent said i don't see myself in those categories i must be something else mm. but when you look at those who did raise their hands the 62.1 million that raised their hands said yes i'm hispanic 75 percent rejected the race categories white black asian indian they said that you know how can i be just one of those I must be something else. And 75% said, I'm some other race. I'm not one of those, which of course drives the census bureau nuts. Right. So we have an interesting situation where even within our own data sets, people are arguing about how well they apply. So it brings us back to this question of then, okay, so what is a quote unquote Hispanic or whatever term we want to use? Uh, and it, but interestingly, those who raise their hand, 
and often said, yeah, I'm Hispanic, but I don't speak Spanish, but I'm Hispanic. You know, I'm Hispanic, but my last name is Smith. It's not Garcia. Or I'm Hispanic, but I really don't like jalapenos. However they got there, you look at the data, and they will have 30% lower age-adjusted rate for heart and cancer and stroke. They'll have a three-year life ex expectation. And I'm thinking, boy, this is really kind of loosey-goosey, but you don't get random outcome. Race, ethnicity, health outcomes. Michael, help me. How do we make sense out of all of this for, for Latinos? I, I mean, I don't think we can cover this in the next 30 <laughs> minutes that we have. But, I mean, I, they're, they're, I, the, the Latino category, the Hispanic category um, is, I think, it, 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 it tells us a lot of interesting things about how we measure difference in this country. Um, one is that it shows us how clearly there are political choices that are made when we define these categories. You know, that's what the Census Bureau is doing. It's about creating um, spaces for different populations in this country and how we define them and how they fit in with the in-group or the more marginalized groups in this country. Um, and historically, if you look at the evolution of the these census categories, um, you know there is for some groups a, a a quote unquote whitening that goes on. Right, you become part of the majority group, um, and over time, there have been groups that have been uh, swallowed into that white category. Um, and I, I don't I, I don't know what your thoughts on this are in terms of having. Um, Hispanic Latino is an ethnicity rather than a race, but is that sort of like a parking lot for, you know, the, the, the place in which those groups or certain members of those groups, um, would be absorbed into the majority group in this country, um, depending on the color of their skin though. Right. So, cause there, there, there are complications and, um, and 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 incredible diversity within that umbrella group, Hispanic Latino. Um, so there's politics. Secondly, you know, there's incredible diversity uh, with in that group. And what does that mean in terms of how we as social scientists or how our colleagues as geneticists or or clinicians? When thinking about some of the challenges that we see in in the in the data, when we look at um, both the heterogeneity of that Hispanic Latino character, but also differential health health outcomes as a group uh, comparing Hispanics to let's say whites or to blacks, but also within that Hispanic Latino group as well. Um, and I think it's very complicated. I don't think we are. We are doing a service to those populations when we measure them as a monolith, um, given what certainly you know to be differential outcomes within those groups and the way in which culture and politics certainly has a big influence on those outcomes. And then certainly some impact um, of, of, of the, when you look at more fine-grained um, ancestry, you know, what risks certain populations may or may not bring to the table. Um, and certainly in an umbrella category like Hispanic or Latino, you, you can't 
you can't measure those finer grain risks. And the same goes for the Asian category, right? I think, you know, that the, the Asian category is such a broad category from, you know, uh, you know, uh, Asians on the India, you know, Pakistani side of that geography to Asians on, you know, the Japan Korean peninsula side of that geography. And then of course, going South, um, there's a, cr- a tremendous amount of cultural and genetic heterogeneity um, in those groups as well. So, and then layer on immigration patterns and time in the country and what generation you are within those groups. Um, when thinking about health and health outcomes, it becomes much more complicated than 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 those groups as a monolith. Mm-hmm. And at the end of every NIH-funded research project that involves human subjects, nonetheless, NIH requires that you put all of your subjects in one of those five race, ethnic categories, or you're out of compliance. What wonderful irony. <laughs> I just want to chat a little bit about the change uh, because there was this issue of were Hispanics white. And interestingly, ever since that Hispanic question was put in in the 1980 census, in the 1980, 90, 2000, 2010 census, about half of people who said they were Hispanic, when they were asked, what was your race, would say white. And we've done research on this. And when Hispanics say they're white, they don't mean it the way that the Proud Boys do. Uh, They often mean, well, uh, I'm an American, so I'm a U.S. citizen. I must be white or I'm middle class. Uh, And increasingly, we've come to understand a lot of people were told when they were younger, like in school, you put down your white on their school forms. And then they've had a lot of internal arguments. But I'm not white. Look at my skin. It's pretty brown. How can I say I'm white? But... The change between 2010 and 2020 was huge. In the 2010 census, about 52% of Latinos said they were white, often with these reservations, but they did it. That plummeted to 20% said they were white in the 2020 census. So it's like this huge almost disquietening or something or othering or whatever. Just uh, what had been a very stable pattern for 40 years suddenly changed. I don't know why, but it suddenly and radically changed anyway so you, uh, what, what, what relationship do you think it has to the current political climate i'm sure that has something to do with it uh also you have now uh i teach one pre-medical course got 150 students in it primarily latino so this is a, a big topic and uh interestingly the vast majority of them had said that when they were in high school or younger, they were told what race to put down. Now, increasingly, they're beginning to question, well, why should I put that down when my family doesn't look like that? Leaving mm-hmm. then open the issue of, so is race even useful to ask Latinos? Most Latinos, at least in this class of 150 students, they know, you know, I'm not just one thing. I'm indigenous, I'm European, I'm African, I'm Asian, I'm kind of all together. Uh, a group that I call, you know, when people ask me what race am I, I say I'm Indo-Afro-Oriento-Ibero-American, <laughs> uh, which is kind of all of the above. But right. kind of, as you look at the Thousand Genomes Project going moving around Latin America, it's kind of what we're finding, just about. Yeah. So uh, if it's if genomics 
wants to still try to force Latinos into one or another of these categories, we're seeing by their behavior on the census kind of rejection of the categories. But then the question is, so what makes us Latino? That particularly that gives these health outcomes. That's the real question. So we've been looking at narrative more than anything else, trying to understand narrative. When people say, yes, I am Hispanic, what do they mean by that? Yeah. Okay. So with that, let me take us back briefly. We only have about another five minutes left uh, to this conference we've been referring to. Uh, well, there are two conferences. The first one is the NIH Conference on Race, Ethnicity, and Genomics and the Old Precision Medicine Initiative. Wow, remember that? Uh, and then there was a follow-on conference we did here in Los Angeles. We, are, we got an R13 conference grant from NIH to follow through. Uh, on one of the issues that we brought up is that increasingly uh, in the United States, people are overtly racially ambiguous. That is, whereas we used to say, well, so-and-so like President Obama was biracial, uh, now people are uh, sort of embracing the ambiguity. In California, in 2015, over half the babies born had mothers and fathers of different single-race groups. Mm-hmm. So they're ambiguous. Uh, are they white? Are they black? Are they Latino? Are they Asian? And what do we what do we do? But when it's over fifty percent, you can't ignore this. So we had a conference just to explore a little bit more about racial ambiguity. Uh, again, using Latinos as a case in point, and this was done by the uh, Center for Hispanic Health at Adventist White uh, Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles, uh, and. While things got interrupted by COVID, uh, I like to continue to ask people about, well, what happens when you fall in between the races? How does this work out? So um, that's driven a lot of the research we've been doing. Uh, and the 2020 census kind of, in many ways, made that conference even more important when 75% of Latinos looking at those stark racial choices, white, black, Asian, Indian, chose other. Right. But, That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, comments, reactions to that, Mike? Well, I, I mean, w- just to say right off the bat, like your work in this area is, is has been so important to to shifting thinking in the space. So, you know, I just congratulate you on, on being such a thought leader here and 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 helping not only academics, but policymakers think about what this idea of ambiguity is going to mean going forward in our country. Um, and when we, when we, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, for, for people who live in California and on, on the West coast in general, I think it's obvious that, you know, there is this incredibly important demographic change that's going on in our country that is, is hopefully someday going to undermine in, you know, so many of the, the stark ways in which we think about race and difference simply by the fact that you know, people through their actions are, are changing what, um, what our demographics are and what they look like. Um, but your, your work here has just been, been really fundamental and important. So that's been fantastic to, to, to watch and, and, and be a part of, we published that, that paper in the American Journal of Public Health on this topic, uh, that I'd love to see get more play, but it's, it's been out there for, I guess, two years now. Um, and then, in, you know, in terms of, you know, longer term thinking about race and the construction of race, I, I, I think where 
where policymakers and academics are missing the mark, um, and again, what you've drawn attention to is that people are thinking differently about difference and how they describe themselves than policymakers and academics. And that gap is going to create problems going forward. As you described it, we just saw it in the latest census. I suspect we're going to see it more and more in research studies um, in terms of how people are defining themselves in a more complicated way. And I think academia needs to catch up with that. Um, As we're designing studies, how do we account for how people are thinking about themselves and what their life experiences are and what their backgrounds are, which are much more complicated than the simple checkboxes on the, you know, inclusion enrollment form that NIH researchers, you know, must fill out when they're developing their research and um, when they're submitting research to their IRBs and when those IRBs become, uh, approval become consent forms, are we reflecting what our future research, research subjects are thinking about themselves and their communities and how they define themselves. And and the answer I think is pretty obvious that we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of catching up to do. Okay. Well, just one last topic uh, on this. Just recently in the past couple of days, the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine released its long awaited report on the use of race in research. I haven't had a chance to go into it deeply uh, but I know you were involved with some of the discussions leading up to it, Mike. I wonder if you could just give us kind of your reaction to that report, what you saw in it. Yeah, so I, I the report was released on Tuesday, and this is a report that I and others have been calling for for years in one form or the, the other. Um, in our 2016 and 2020 science papers, David, you were part of the 2020 paper as a signatory. Um, we called for this very report. Um, I'll, I'll describe what I think are some of the challenges first, and then I'll jump into why I think this report is is an important pivot for for the field. Um, the, the The first challenge I think is that the 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 <clears throat> the committee was very narrowly charged. It was really charged to think about race and population identifiers very narrowly in genetics and genomics research and and of course, you have to start somewhere. Um, but I think that you know you, you can't think about race in a vacuum in this context, particularly when genetics and genomics researchers need social scientists to help them think about um, what it means to 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 measure, define, and define populations, but also to understand what are the the measures variable you're looking at. Um, in in studying different different genes and environmental impacts and other social and health determinants, um, I think the, the the second challenge is going to be you know what does a National Academy's series of recommendations actually look like in the real world, and we're, we'll we'll wait to see what the NIH and other federal funders of research. Do with these recommendations and how they're operationalized. As it's outlined in the series of recommendations in this report, I think there's some hope that um, there'll be some positive movement um, to, to, to move away from racial typologies in, in genetics and genomics research as a start. I should also add that there are other professional organizations that are doing similar 
types of work right now and thinking through similar types of recommendations for their fields as well. So there's sort of been this groundswell of movement over the last five to 10 years to, to, to move science in a better direction. Um, the, the final critique I'll say, you know, I'm looking at recommendation one as an example. It says researchers should not use race as a proxy for human genetic variation. In particular, researchers should not assign genetic ancestry groups labels, genetic ancestry group labels to individuals or sets of individuals based on their race, whether self-identified or not, which I think, you know, isn't as direct as as my recommendation in my in our 2016 science paper, which basically said race should not be used as a a a, 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 a tool for um, geneticists in their research at all. Um, we called for its removal. Um, my challenge with that first sentence is race researchers should not use race as a proxy for human genetic variation is that it still may be used as a proxy for a social determinant. Um, and then we're potentially back at square one where we're saying, you know, race is not a good measure of human biological diversity, but it's a great measure. It's a potentially an important measure for, for social sociocultural difference. Um, and social socially constructed race could play a role here. And I, and I just think that that's a very, fine line that will be trampled on over and over again. Um, in terms of the positives, there's there's this great report um, that digs into the history of the use of race and the current problems. And it comes with the imprimatur of the National Academies, which I think is fantastic. Um, and there are a lot of great recommendations in here for how to move genetics and genomics as, as fields away from racial typologies in their research. And I am hopeful with continued um, agitation from both within the national academies and the NIH, but also from outside of it, given some of the work that you and I and some of our colleagues, David, are doing, I think uh, we will continue to move in a positive direction. You and I are involved with some other people, Michelle Burton and others, Alice Pope Joy, in a um, event that's going to be taking place on May 30th, dealing with these very topics. Would you just like to tell our audience about it a little bit? Sure. So, you know, one of the, uh, the, the jumps that I think you and I and Alice Popejoy from UC Davis have made is, is acknowledging the fact that while these are, these meaning the, the, the issues that we were just discussing in the context of the National Academy are issues of science, they're not only issues of science, they're issues of great interest to the community. Um, or communities that 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 we want to affect change in and improve the health of. And Michelle Burton from the Community Health Councils in Los Angeles, um, who who is a fantastic academic and um, community activist. Uh, we've been working closely with her to think about developing both some events and also some activism around these issues. Um, and there'll be an event, as you said, at the end of May. And the goal of that is to engage community leaders in thinking about these issues. And we're going to do the same thing at a fall event as well. So I think as we pivot to, to bringing this, these ideas uh, and building bridges between academics and communities, um, hopefully we can continue to, to make some change in this space. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Udell from Arizona State University. Well, that's all for this week. 
Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe if you haven't. And if you'd like to support us, go to our website and just click that little support us button. Any and all contributions to CESLAC are greatly appreciated. And they help us continue our work, our podcast, our research, our public service, and our educational activities. Our executive producers for this particular episode are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. This episode was written by Brandy Lopez and Giselle Hernandez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in to the next episode as we delve further into topics of Latino culture, gente, and health. Thank you.